Well, uh, we are uh, glad to be able to have uh, this opportunity uh, to dive into God's word this morning. And so if you would, just let me uh, open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll move into our time in the word. Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for the blessings that you give us in our lives. God, thank you for the opportunity to worship together. And God, thank you for a community of believers that uh, we can gather together and uh, experience uh, the love and the support and the care of one another um, as demonstrated primarily by Jesus Christ. And so, God, we just thank you uh, for uh, this body of believers. God, would you just uh, open your word to our hearts? Uh, God, that as we uh, physically uh, look and read your word, uh, God, we ask that our minds and our lives would be transformed. And God, that we would be renewed in our thinking. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning again. I have a question for you. Um, I was wondering, what kind of death would you like to have? <laughs> Fast, yeah. Okay. You can line up in the back if you want a quick one. No. Um, no, seriously, so just to sort of think about this is what, you know, what kind of death, have you ever thought about that? You know, it's maybe a little morbid, but what kind of death would you like to have? Maybe, maybe you're somebody that would love to have like a heroic death, you know, like some of those war movies where you're jumping on a grenade or you're, you know, diving in front of a bullet to save someone's life. Uh, maybe that's your dream, right? And you kind of hope to go out in style. Um, maybe you're somebody that would like just kind of a quiet death. Uh, to just pass away peaceably, maybe, you know, in your sleep as you uh, drift off into glory. Uh, maybe you would like something that is, you know, sudden. You know, you don't want to have to see it coming and suffer and endure. Um, or maybe you would like to see it coming. And you would like to be able to, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, put some closure on things before you go. There's a lot of different things to sort of think about, but I wonder this, if you could set the stage of your own death, when would it be? Who, who would be with you? And what would be the final words spoken? You know, I think it's kind of, you know, a goofy thing a little bit, but I also think that at the same time, these are important questions. And sometimes when we're young, we sort of have this idea that we're going to live forever, and we kind of operate and live that way, and then the older we get and the closer we get, the more of the reality of our mortality starts to settle in. And these questions and the enormity of their significance grows day by day by day in our lives. This morning, if you have your Bibles, and you will open with me to John chapter 19, we are going to be looking at the crucifixion of Christ. And we are working our way through the book of John, and we are come, have come to the crucifixion and death of Christ. And so for those of us that are believers, those of us who know and love the Lord, the crucifixion is everything. It is familiar to us. It is the heart of our gospel message. It's Everything that we focus on in the songs that we sing, in the sermons that we preach, in the books that we read. 
And all of those things have to do with Christianity, ultimately have to focus on the cross and the subsequent resurrection of Christ. And so John is writing this letter and he has a purpose and it's an explicitly stated purpose that he gives us actually in chapter 20, verse 31. He tells us why he wrote the gospel and really why all of the gospels were written, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. They are written to give evidence of glory, the glory of God, the deity of Christ. That evidence is then to lead to saving faith by which we can receive eternal life. And this is the highest and noblest purpose of all purposes. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give us accounts of Jesus so that we might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing, we might have eternal life in his name. That is the purpose of it. And so Jesus Christ went to the cross because God chose for him to be the lamb who could be the atoning sacrifice for the sins of all people throughout all of history. Jesus came, he tells us, to pour out his life as an offering to God, a sacrifice for sin. And we understand the divine purpose of the death of Christ. He died as a substitute for those who believe in him. He took our punishment, he took our judgment, the full penalty of our sins so that we could be forgiven since the penalty is paid and God is ultimately satisfied. We can be forgiven granted eternal life to live forever with God in the bliss and the joy of heaven. And that's what we sing about. And we sing about, or that's why we sing about the cross. That's why we celebrate the cross. That's why we love the cross. That's why we wear the cross. That's why there is a cross behind me even now as I speak. But we also understand the ugliness of the cross. Right? How could we miss it? While the cross is a supreme expression of God's redeeming love, it is also the ultimate manifestation of man's wretchedness. It is the most egregious sin against divine light, divine love, and divine grace. But the heart of Christianity is the cross. The theme of the cross runs through all of the Gospels. And they're moving towards their conclusion, which is at the cross and followed by the resurrection. And the rest of the epistles in the, in the New Testament describe the theology of the cross. The book of Acts chronicles the preaching of the cross. The book of Revelation ends with the New Testament, with the triumph of the crucified one as he comes to establish his kingdom on earth and then everlasting in the new heaven and in the new earth. And so we are not surprised, right, that John is consumed with the cross. The theme of the cross has run throughout the entire gospel. And whenever you have a theme of the cross, then you have the reality that is behind the cross, which is not just the sovereignty of God, but it is the sin of man. John's gospel is concerned with sin and death, not just physical death, but spiritual death and eternal death. John's gospel is concerned with judgment, eternal judgment and eternal resurrection, judgment in a body, not 
a body like this, but a body that is fitted for everlasting punishment in hell. But it is interesting to me that one important aspect of John's uh, depiction of this is that he does not enter into any description, really, of physical suffering. He doesn't give us a description of the things that Jesus suffered on the cross. He doesn't lay it out for us. The gospel writers give us a little bit more than that, but really, none of the gospel writers uh, really use the physical suffering as the primary issue. Tens of thousands of people were crucified, and they were crucified during uh, you know, the Persian era. But what the New Testament wants us to understand is not the physical suffering of Christ, but the spiritual suffering of Christ. That he was suffering for sin in our place under the wrath of God. That is the primary issue. And so when we come to the New Testament, we are always going to be led with a glimpse of the physical suffering that will lead us into the reality of the spiritual suffering of Christ so that we understand the theology of the cross. The death of Christ was no ordinary death in terms of the redemptive impact of the world. And so the title of this message is No Ordinary Death. Because it was everything but. And so this morning, I want to take a few minutes and I want to just highlight with you the ways in which the death of Christ was not simply not ordinary, but it also was in fact extraordinary. And while our deaths cannot have the same redemptive effect on the world as the death of Christ has had, I think that there are some aspects of this, there are some principles and some application for us that can suit our own death as we look at the death of Christ. It can guide us as we take a look at and look towards our own death if Christ doesn't first return. And so much about the cross has been said and can be said. This passage on the crucifixion of the death of Christ rightly, is taught every Good Friday and every Easter. You've probably heard a lot of messages about the cross and the death of Christ. And so today I want to take a little bit of a different look at the death of Christ. And I want to look at what I think the author here, John, wants us to see, and that is the lens through which we can see the glory of Jesus on full display in the manner with which he walked through his own death. And today I would like to invite each of us to consider four aspects in which the glory of Jesus was revealed in his death and four challenges for each of us as believers to consider as we await our own death. See, we can live our lives in a way that will make our death far from ordinary. And so if you just open your Bibles, follow along with me. There's also an insert in your bulletin. If you'd like to take notes, uh, you can follow along there as well. But let me just walk with us in these four aspects. The first aspect of the glory of Christ's death that we see is Scripture. It's Scripture. It is the fulfillment of Scripture. So this is kind of looked at throughout this whole section. And so I'm going to kind of bounce around and then I'll come back and reread some sections. Uh, But look along with me here in John chapter 19, starting in verse 16. It says, So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull 
which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests uh, of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see those to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. And then if you will, just jump down to verse 31 and pick up later here. It says, Since it was the day of preparation, and so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, and they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it was born, has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And we'll stop there. See, this is pretty amazing because what we see in the death of Christ is something that is highly unordinary. It is the fulfillment of prophecy, the fulfillment of scripture. His death was very unordinary because the glory of the cross is found in the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And so as we look closely, it probably won't surprise us that John wants us to understand the glory of the cross in the sense that it is the specific fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. We see this in verse 24. This was to fulfill the scripture. And down again in verse 28, all things had already been accomplished to fulfill scripture. And so the first thing that we see in the crucifixion of Christ in John's account is that everything is happening to fulfill scripture. This is massive evidence because the ones that are doing all of these things to Jesus are pagans. They have no connection to scripture. They don't know anything about the scripture, right? These are Roman soldiers. There is no effort on their part to fulfill anything. They're just doing what they normally do. They're doing what they have always done at every crucifixion that they've been part of. Uh, one man, Canon Lydon, years ago said that there are about 330 specific prophecies regarding Christ and his first coming. And somebody did a little bit of a mathematical calculation and said for all 330 prophecies to happen, it would be the same as a chance of 1 in 84 with 100 zeros behind it. In short, it means that it's really not possible from a human perspective. And yet, these are prophecies that were fulfilled in the death and crucifixion of Christ. Isaiah 53 verse 8 says, He was taken from prison and from judgment. 
speaking of his death. And that's exactly what happened, right? There was no interval. Even by Jewish laws and standards, there should have been days between the pronouncement of judgment and his execution, but there wasn't. And according to Roman law, there should have been days for evidence to be able to be given so that somebody could make a case or provide a defense. But that didn't happen. He went from prison and sentencing immediately to execution. The very specific words, he was taken from prison and from judgment to death. That's exactly what happened. Every step, every move, everything that happened, every act accurately predicted the Old Testament prophecy. This was no victim. This was a planned, designed death set in motion by God. It violated all of the laws of the justice system among the Jews as well as the Romans. And it wasn't just... These few things, this passage fulfills many prophecies. It fulfills Genesis chapter 22 and Exodus chapter 29 and Leviticus chapter 4 and Numbers chapter 21 and Psalm chapter 22 and Zechariah 12 and Isaiah 53, just to name a few. It is the fulfillment of scripture. And so what does that have to do with us? Well, I think that there is a principle of application here for each one of us. And that is that every believer has a divine calling and a spiritual purpose in life. Now here's the thing is that our divine calling and spiritual purpose is not going to have the same redemptive effect that the work of Christ had on the cross. And I'm not trying to compare those two things. But Jesus fulfilled the will of the Father by fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament in his death. And each one of us has a will of the Father. Do you know that God has a specific plan and purpose for your life? That he has specific objectives that he wants to accomplish in you and through you for the sake of the world around you. It's his will and it's his purpose. And so what is it that God has caused you or called you to accomplish for his will and purpose. And if you were to die today, if you were to walk away from here this afternoon, and this was your last day, would you be able to have confidence? Would you and I have confidence that we have accurately and, and, and appropriately sought to, see, to fulfill the will and purpose of God in our lives? Where are you at on your journey See, there's a lot of different goals that people can have. Maybe your goal is specific career accomplishments, that you want to reach a certain status, that you want to reach a certain position. Maybe your goals are simply family, that you just want to raise and grow a family, and you want to just love your family well all through the years. Maybe it's to accumulate wealth and possessions so that you can hit a certain point in your life where you can just sort of retire in comfort and luxury. And none of those things in and of themselves are bad things. But what about the will and purpose of God? What is it that God is calling you to accomplish? If we want to have a life and a death that is far from ordinary, then it starts by seeking and fulfilling the will and call of God in our There's a second part to his death that we want to look at, and that is the sign. I want to jump back to verse 19. I'll reread this. It says, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. 
So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. You can like hear it in Pilate's voice, right? I've written what I've written. You just deal with it. It's interesting here, though, that it becomes another aspect of the glory of God that John is highlighting here. See, because his unordinary death, in his unordinary death, there was no crime and there was no guilt. See, it was customary that when somebody was crucified, that they would be paraded through town dragging their own instrument of execution, in this case, the cross. And in front of that person, there would be another man who would walk in front of them with a sign or a placard. And this would identify the crime and it was designed to communicate and put fear in the hearts of all of the people for violating you know, the Roman law. And so Jesus was essentially taken through the city and he went from judgment to execution. And in the process of being taken to his execution, this place, the skull, Golgotha, there was a man with a sign and was placed in front of him. And we don't see this in the text, but it was sort of the historical tradition. And so it probably was already happening as he walked along the road. But no doubt this was the sign that was put over Jesus as he hung on the cross. The sign itself brings glory to Christ. It's fascinating. Again, verse 19, it says that Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. The Jewish leaders had said, if you remember before, you know, what good can come from Nazareth? And so Pilate uses this as a kind of sarcasm, a kind of mockery, a way to sort of heap scorn on them. And Pilate uses this little moment to get back at the Jewish leaders and so he places this sign for, in a place where everybody's going to be able to read it. And he puts it in Hebrew and in Latin and in Greek. He, he says it three times. King of the Jews, King of the Jews, King of the Jews. Hebrew was the language of the religion. It was the language of Israel. Greek was the language of the culture, uh, of the philosophy, the language of Greece. Latin was the language of power. It was the language of Rome. And those were the languages that Pilate chose for everybody to be able to read. And there were Jewish pilgrims at that time that were coming from Passover. And they were coming from all over the Mediterranean area. And so the, all of those language would have, would, languages would have been represented by the people that were there. And so he took all of the languages, the language of religion, the language of culture, the language of power... And he brought those together in unison to say, this is the king of the Jews. This weakling from no place like Nazareth. But isn't God good? In his folly, he declares an absolute truth. Because Jesus is the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He was born and when he was born, the angel came and declared to his mother Mary that she would have a child who would be a king, who would reign on a throne over an eternal kingdom. And if you remember in his infancy, there were wise men that came from the east searching for him as God's king. In fact, in the very beginning of this week, before he was crucified, earlier in John chapter 12, the people were announcing him. It says, all the people were shouting, blessed is the king of Israel. 
And so Pilate sort of witlessly and stupidly and ignorantly has spoken an absolute truth. It's kind of like Caiaphas back in chapter 11 when he was talking about killing Jesus and he put it this way. He said, is it, it is expedient that one man should die for the nation. And what he meant by that was that we need to kill him so that our nation can be saved. But when he said it, it was a declaration of the meaning of the death of Christ. And this again is how God makes the wrath of men to praise him. And so they came to Pilate and they said, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't put that up there, right? Just say that this is what he said. This is who he said he was. But Pilate wouldn't have anything to do with it. And in verse 22, he says, what I have written, I've written, right? He was happy to stick it to them, to turn the knife a little bit, just for momentary vengeance. But what he said was true. And so for the whole world, the whole world would know this. For all of human history, the cross will always say this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. It's a declaration that he is God's Messiah. What a great thing to think about. But again, I sort of wonder, well, what does this have to do with maybe you and I? Well, maybe another sort of point of application would be this. For you and I, for every believer, every believer will leave behind a legacy of faith. I don't know if you've thought about this or not, but every person really leaves behind a legacy of faith. And so not only are we needing to sort of be thinking about are we fulfilling the will and the calling of God in our lives, but what legacy about faith are we going to leave behind? See, there will be some people who die and believers who die and at their funeral and the time that passes, um, you know, the reflection on their faith will be very minimal. Maybe there is, a, you know, a person out there that when they die, um, yeah, they'll, they'll be sort of known that they had faith, but there really won't be anything more than that. Um, it might even be a situation where maybe the people in their life wouldn't even really know that they had faith that they had trusted Christ as their savior. But then there can be other people too. And maybe, you know, you're that person. Maybe you're the person that when you die, somebody will know. And when you have your funeral and people speak about you, they will know that you loved Jesus. That you were passionate about following him. That you were passionate about sharing the love of Christ in the world around you. But one way or another, there is a legacy of faith that will get left behind. And it's up to us to decide what that's going to look like. And at the end of your life, when you die and your days are no more and you pass on to glory, will the people that remain know about your faith? Would they know today, if you were to die today, would they know that you love Jesus? Would they know that your heart was for him, that you were for the kingdom of God? Or would they just sort of think, well, I think that that's something that they kind of did on Sundays. I think that that was something that was part of their life way back when. But really what they loved was X, right? Boats, trips, people, things, work. But what is it that we pass along? What is going to be the message? What is going to be the legacy of faith? The legacy for Jesus was he was declared 
the king of the Jews. You know, we probably, I hope, are not going to have to walk through execution. I hope that's not in the plan for any of us here. And when you're executed, or if you're executed, right, you probably won't have a sign that will be broadcasting and declaring the crime that you committed. Hopefully that won't be true of anybody in here. But we kind of have these situations, right? We have gravestones. We have markers, inscriptions. And maybe your gravestone will have your name on it. And it will have, you know, the year that you were born. And it will have the year that you passed away. But what else is it going to say? What do you want your gravestone to say? And maybe beyond that, what would you want your spiritual gravestone to say? What, would, what is it that you want to be said about your faith in Christ? What legacy will you leave behind in faith? Well, let's look at the third part, the third aspect of this. The third one, we've seen scripture, we've seen the sign, and now sympathy. And this is pretty incredible. Look at verses 25 through 27. It says, but standing by the cross of Jesus, where his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. This kind of blows me away a little bit that, you know, Jesus is being crucified. He's gone through all of this suffering. He's on the cross, hanging, waiting to die, waiting to be brought into eternity, reconciled back to his father. And yet, what is he thinking about? One of the things that he's thinking about is his own mother. See, in his unordinary death, Jesus took thought of and cared for those that were left behind. There at the foot of the cross, there were four followers of Jesus. There had been many more uh, before that, we know, but now there are only four. The apostles had fled with the exception of one man, and that is John the disciple whom Jesus loved, and three women. It's a very courageous thing to do because they were identifying with a criminal who was being executed. And so it took courage to show up. But even more than that, it it took uh, an overwhelming, overpowering love. And so they're there. And the mother of Jesus is simply identified by John as his mother without even mentioning her name, which really is consistent. It reminds us that Mary really kept a low-profile throughout all of the New Testament. Obviously, she was chosen by God to be the earthly mother of the Lord Jesus Christ, but she finds no special place in redemption beyond the fact that she bore the Son of God. Back in Luke chapter 2, uh, she was told that a child had come into the world for the, her child had come into the world for the rising and falling of many. And through him, a sword would pierce her soul. Think about Mary for a second. She had raised the perfect, sinless son of God in her home. She had loved him with a love that was not like any other love by any other human being could possibly know. And subsequently, she had loved him in a way that she couldn't possibly love anybody else. She being loved by him in a way that no one could ever be loved and loving in a way that no one has ever loved was bound to him in a way that no other human could ever know except for her. And here it ends at the cross. And so scripture tells us that it's like a sword going through her soul. 
Joseph, you know, had disappeared. He was probably dead at this point. Mary had been cared for by Jesus and his brothers and sisters. But at this point, none of them believe in him. We know that from John chapter 7. And so now his mother has a need. But the need is specific. It's not just someone to care for her, but someone who believes in him. Someone who believes in him strongly. Someone who is going to represent him to her. And that someone happens to be the only disciple who is standing there. The disciple that is identified as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was standing there, and that's, of course, John. So, you know, throughout the entire, he refers to himself by name. Um, he does have a name, obviously, um, and he actually has a nickname. Him and his brother James had a nickname of Sons of Thunder. And they earned those nicknames, if you remember, because they were brash and bold men. But they were very brash. In fact, they're the ones that sent their mother to ask Jesus if he would give them the right and left hand place when he came into his kingdom. They were somewhat egotistical and self-promoting, bold, brash men. But something dramatic had happened to John. Because as he looks back, over his life, right? He's an old man at this point when he's writing this gospel and he looks back and he sees himself as completely changed. And so in chapter 13, when they're sitting at the Lord's Supper and he's reclining, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And then he does that again here in chapter 19. And so now all of a sudden he is this disciple whom Jesus loved. And I think that it probably overwhelmed him because there's something about being a son of thunder that doesn't necessarily make you lovable. <laughs> he had experienced the love of Christ, and it transformed him. It completely changed him. And he became known as the apostle of love. And if there's anything that identifies the, this gospel, is that he understands the love of God and the love of Christ. And so the women are there, and John is there, and Jesus is focused on his mother. And even though she's not named, and that's consistent with uh, the fact that, you know, she doesn't have any significant role in redemption, she appears only once more in the book of Acts because she's there at the day of Pentecost in the upper room, and she's there, and she's never again referred to in the entire New Testament because she plays no role, no redemptive role in salvation. But she needs to be cared for, right? She's not a supernatural being. She's a widow who has lost her greatest love, her firstborn son. And the rest of her children don't believe in him. And she needs someone to care for her. And so Jesus looks down at her and says, Woman, behold your son. And he's directing her to the apostle John. And he looks to the apostle John and says, Behold your mother, and from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. And, you know, we can kind of look at this and we can think, well, you know, woman, that sounds kind of cold and aggressive. But, you know, that happened, that change, that shift happened earlier, three years ago, when he began his ministry. If you remember the story of Cana, he refers to her when he's, you know, she's asking for more wine and he turns the water into wine. And he refers to her as woman and it was a term of endearment. It was a term of respect. But it was a change in relationship. It doesn't mean that she loved him any less. And it certainly didn't mean that 
he loved her any less because he loved his own who were in the world to the end, to the extreme, to an eternal blessing. But here he's expressing his sympathy for his mother. And this is the heart of God that even in the midst of most horrible suffering, if there was ever a moment in the life of Christ that he might have sort of checked his sympathy at the door, this would have been that moment. But he doesn't. And he's pouring out an even greater love. And really, if you look at this whole timeline, right, starting in Thursday, Thursday when he's with the disciples in the upper room, and then he's going through to the cross, it is just an overwhelming, greater and greater display of pouring out love on the world. And that's why I think in John, he writes in chapter 13, verse 1, he says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus had great sympathy for those, even in the midst of his own death, that he was going to leave behind. And so what does it mean for us? Well, I think it means that for every believer, we will leave people behind that need the love and care of Christ. We need it. Not only do we need to be cognizant of the will and purpose that God has for our lives, and intentional about leaving behind a legacy of faith where we are open and sharing, but we need to be mindful of the people that we're leaving behind. Jesus was thoughtful, and he cared over those that were being left behind. There's a man uh, back at a previous church. His name was Paul Heidenreich, and um, Paul became a believer. Uh, I, I don't really know, like late teens, early 20s, or something like that. And he got involved right away in the ministry of Awana. So if you don't know about Awana, Awana is big on sharing the gospel with kids and uh, getting them to hide God's word into their hearts. And he was sharing uh, this ministry. He was participating in this ministry. And he would just every night load up loads and loads of kids and take them every week to Awana so that they could hear the gospel. And sometimes he would go back out and make multiple trips to be able to take them. And his kids went through the Awana ministry, but you know what? He didn't stop there, and he continued, and he continued to serve. And, and I don't remember the specifics, but, you know, I think he served for like 40 or 50 years in the Awana ministry, every year, every Wednesday night, showing up for those kids. And when he passed away, uh, there was just this outpouring of love for Paul. And there were many people that were part of that ministry of Awana that had been impacted by Paul. And, but the amazing thing to me was is that there were some people that were loving Jesus and going to church and serving him, and there were some people that had kind of walked away or they weren't really going to church. But the consistent message across the board from everybody that was there was that they knew that Paul loved them and cared for them. And they knew that Paul loved them and cared for them because God loved them and cared for them. See, here's the thing is that we don't serve in Sunday school ministries and children's ministries and ministries around the church just because there's a need, although there is, right? It's there. And we don't serve in those ministries just because we want to use our gifts, although that's an important thing for us to do. But we serve in these ministries so that when we are gone, that there will be a generation of people that will know. Yeah. That will know the love and care of Christ. It's, it's, it's why we do it. And so we seek to fulfill the purpose and the calling that God gives us. And we want to leave a life of legacy. 
And a big part of that is serving people. A big part of that is making sure that the people that are going to still be around when we're gone, that they know and experience the love and care of Christ. The fourth aspect of the glory of Jesus' death is found in sovereignty. Read in verse 28 down through 30. This is what it says. It says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. You know, it's, it's interesting, this last part, right? It just shows his humanity, doesn't it? It's like in the fullness of his glory and his deity, he's going to remind everybody one last time that he is human. Verse 29, a jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And this is amazing, right? His unordinary death, in his unordinary death, Jesus was in control of the exact moment. He was in control down to the very last moment. Here we see the divine sovereignty of Jesus, the divine supremacy. He controls his own death. First, we see his omniscience. Omniscience is to know everything. Omnipotence is to have all power. And it says in verse 28, Jesus, knowing all things, had already been accomplished. He knows everything because as God, he is omniscient. He knows the plan of God exactly. He knows when every single detail has been accomplished. He knows that all scripture must be fulfilled in his dying. And he knows that the the end is near. And so you think back even in his prayer in John chapter 17, he said, I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He was anticipating this very moment some hours later the next day. But there was one prophecy that was yet to be fulfilled and he knew it. And so he says, I am thirsty. And so what did he have in mind? He, of course, had in mind Psalm 69 verse 21 And it says, they gave me gall, but for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. They gave me sour wine to drink. Mark 15, verse 36, he writes this, someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, a hyssop reed, gave him a drink. Why? Because the promise of the Old Testament was that this would occur at the death of the Messiah. And they gave him sour wine to drink. They had tried to give him gall, but he didn't take it because gall, which is different, was a sedative that would try to diminish the pain. And so uh, they would try to sort of help him out a little bit, but he refused that because they want, he wanted to have the full impact of suffering. And so, you know, what is this sour wine? Well, there's a couple of different possibilities, and maybe both of them are true. Some say um, that there was, you know, that it was there for the soldiers to quench their thirst. And it was kind of a cheap form of wine, almost like a vinegar. Others say it was used uh, to sort of quench the thirst of the dying victim uh, for the purpose of extending his agony. Uh, They would basically die because they would literally dry up and just completely drying up, totally parched. 
And so what they would do is they'd give them something a little bit to drink, kind of like sour wine, to extend their agony. But he refused the gall, he took the sour wine, and his thirst was quenched. And so you might think, well, that doesn't make sense because it didn't prolong his life. But it was never intended to prolong his life. It was only intended to fulfill Scripture. And once Scripture was fulfilled, and that was the last Scripture, then there was nothing else to do. And the psalm says, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine. Notice that they put it on a sponge on the end of a hyssop reed and put it up to his mouth. Anybody reading uh, that has kind of a Jewish background would immediately think of Exodus chapter 12, uh, Passover in Egypt. The angel of death came and they, would, they had to have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and the cross piece of the door so that the angel of death would pass over and not kill their firstborn. And they were told to sacrifice the lamb, spread it over the doorpost and the cross piece using hyssop. And so here, the true Passover lamb and the hyssop plays a part in the scene again. And the Jews would be thinking back about this to the saving blood of the Passover lamb. But here, in the final and the only true Passover lamb, he, say, he speaks out and he says, to Telestai, it has been finished. It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Isn't that amazing? You need to know that he died way ahead of schedule for crucified people. You also need to know that he is no wimp. He is not an emancipated man, emancipated, an emancipated man. He's weak, not a weak person who looks anorexic. If ever there was a man who was all that manhood could be, it was Jesus. No sin, no corruption. And it is also important to note that when he died, he died because he willed himself to die. And he gave up his spirit. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 50, it says, it is finished. And he was shouting. Not only did people die on the cross from dehydration, but also asphyxiation. But it's too soon for that to be happening for him. He's just been given something to drink, and so he's still strong. And so he shouts at the top of his voice, and he bows his own head. There's no violent jerk, no slump of the head. Uh, The verb has been translated in other places to say this. He pillowed his head and gave up his spirit. In John chapter 10, verse 17, it says, No man takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up again. And he'll do that Sunday morning. It is finished. And then Luke says that he cried, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he willed his own being out of his body and into heaven. And so what did he finish? He finished the redemption by substitution. He finished bearing the wrath of God for the sins of people. All of this, again, is so powerful. And the irony of it all is that there is a dying man man who controls his own death. And this powerful testimony becomes a testimony to his deity that has an immediate impact on the people that are there. I like what Spurgeon wrote. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. He said, stripped of his clothes, nailed to a cross, our Lord was mocked by a rabid crowd 
was dying in agony. So that was no common faith which at such a moment could believe in Jesus as Lord and King. He was surrounded by scoffers, yet he became our Lord's last companion on earth and first companion at the gate of heaven. He's talking about the the thief on the cross that was next to him. And so we have this example of sovereignty in his last moments at his death. And so once again, what does that mean for us as we close? It means for every believer's death, we can have confidence, we can trust that it is in the hands and timing of God. (coughs) Excuse me. That means that our death is in the hands of God, that the timing of our death is also in God's hands. It might be nice to set the stage, wouldn't it? It might be nice to dictate when it would happen and how it would happen and the details kind of surrounding it. But the reality is that God is in control of these things, that he is sovereign. And sometimes when loved ones pass away in our lives and we experience this grief and the deep hurt and pain and sorrow and loss of having a loved one leave, it can, it can feel very flippant to say, well, God is in control, right? But what do we mean by that? We mean that God is control of every moment of our lives, And if God was this vindictive, uh, judgmental God, then we we would live in fear of that control. But the reality is this, that we can trust and rest in the sovereignty of God based on this one simple truth, and that is that God is good. That God is good. And so as we think about our own mortality and we think about our own day that will no doubt come unless Christ comes again and returns before we die, all of us will face a day where we will be ushered through death's door and into eternity. And when that happens, we can trust that God is in control and that he is good and that he will walk with us through each step of that process. And even though we may not know exactly when that's going to happen or what that's going to look like or what that experience is going to be look, looking what that experience is going to look like, we can know that his goodness and his deity, his supremacy, his sovereignty will get us through. And so we can trust him. We all understand that the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ is the most blessed act of divine love and divine justice to ever occur. That's at the very heart of the Christian faith. And while the Jews were complicit in rejecting Christ and desiring him to be killed, and the Romans were the ones who actually did the killing, it was God who was fulfilling his plan by putting his son on the cross. The crucifixion is an act of God by which God fulfills his purpose to secure the eternal salvation of millions of souls and open the door of heaven for all of us, while at the same time not compromising his justice. He has to punish sin, and so he punishes it in Christ. This protects his holiness. But he also wants to forgive sinners because that is his love. Love and holiness then meet at the cross. Our Lord Jesus Christ is not a mere victim of an unjust and wicked men. Though he was murdered unjustly 
and wickedly and illegally. But he died willingly. And even more than that, he died willingly in submission to the will of the Father who had sent him to be the sacrifice to atone for the sins of his people. The death of Christ on the cross is the purest act of love ever. It is the most personal and perfect sacrifice for sin and the only one that atones. It is the noblest gift that heaven has ever given sinners. And it is the highest form of divine justice. It is so rich an event that in a lifetime, an eternity, cannot absorb its full glory. The death of the Son of God is the work of the Father and the Son to provide forgiveness for all who believe. And so this morning, I just want to sort of leave us with this challenge. Will your death be ordinary? Will my death just be another death? Or will it be unordinary? Will it be extraordinary? Because what is required for an extraordinary death is not some heroic sacrifice. Christ has already done the pinnacle of that already. It doesn't require perfection throughout our lives because we can't attain that. And Christ has already lived the perfect and sinless life. But to live an extraordinary life and to experience an unordinary death is to know Christ and to live and die the way that Christ did. Not in the redemptive sense, but in the fellowship sense. We can have an unordinary death when we fulfill the will and purpose that God has for our lives. We can have an unordinary death when we leave behind a legacy of passionate and fruitful faith. We can have an unordinary death when we pass along the care and love of Christ to those that are left behind. We can have an unordinary death when we share in the peace and the hope of knowing that Jesus, who is good and faithful, is in control of our very moment of death. And so it's up to you, it's up to me, it's up to us to decide what kind of life will you live and ultimately, what kind of life will you leave? Will your death be ordinary or will it be extraordinary because of Christ and his power in and through us? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning once again. And God, we thank you for your word that reveals to us the truth of Jesus' death and crucifixion. And God, our hearts are humbled and broken at the suffering and the excruciating pain that you went through on the cross. But God, we are so grateful for the example that you set forth. God, that you willingly went to the cross and sacrificed yourself so that we could live again. And God, we pray that our lives would walk in that same faithfulness. God, that we would be, uh, that God, we would honor you as we walk and live our lives in a way to fulfill your will and your calling for each one of us. God, may we leave behind a legacy of faithfulness. 
that when we leave, that people would know that we loved you, that we worshiped you, that we trusted you for eternal life. God, may we pass along the love and care that you have shown us, that you've given to us for others as we depart this world. And God, may we just trust you with each of our steps. We don't know when our day will be our last. We don't know if it'll be today or tomorrow or next year or 50 years from now, but God, we know that you hold it in your hands and that you are good. And so we can trust you with it. And so God, may we be faithful in our lives as we live. And God, may we be extraordinary in our death as we follow you to the very end. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.